You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. If you've ever been near a river in Australia, maybe you've been lucky enough to catch a glimpse of a platypus. And if so, you would not soon forget the sight of an apparent cross between a furry mammal and a duck. Yeah, they look like a cross between a ferret and a beaver. They have a very much a beaver-like tail, and then they have webbed feet as well. But although we've now sequenced the platypus genome and garnered clues about its mammalian evolution and our own, there's still a lot we don't know about this alluring animal. And now, with climate change and the drying up of rivers, there is some concern that the platypus is experiencing a silent decline. Could the world's strangest animal disappear before we really get to know it? The platypus, as odd as it is, is a fellow mammal. So to understand ourselves better, it might help to better understand our evolutionary cousins. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley, and this is Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute. In this episode, meet the creature that blurs the line between many classes of organisms, combining mammalian characteristics with those associated with birds. Find out what it's like to catch one, how to avoid its venomous sting, and what its genome reveals about the reason this mammal lays eggs, plus why its vulnerable status is prompting the creation of the world's first platypus sanctuary. These animals are so appealing that we can't help in this episode but be platypus crazy. To encounter a timid platypus face to face can't help but prompt you to admire what evolution can do. I mean, even seasoned platypus watchers are moved. Look, I think the thing that always amazes me that even after catching so many, I'm still amazed by what a bizarre creature they are. I mean, there's nothing else like them in the world. And and to hold them, they're actually fairly placid when you capture them. They're, they're fairly tolerant of me sort of harassing them a bit. Their fur is incredibly soft and, and dense, which is what sort of keeps them warm and waterproof. The first scientist that received these pelts back in England thought they were a hoax because basically they have what is like a rubbery duck sort of bill and then they have webbed feet as well. So they have claws on their feet but they also have webbing that they can retract when they're walking on land. And I think the thing that probably amazes most people is, is that iconic bill. They're sort of known as duck-billed platypuses but they're nothing like duck bills at all. They're quite soft and pliable, an incredibly sensitive organ, but also tough at the same time.
Indeed, when in 1799 the English zoologist George Shaw received a platypus pelt from the New South Wales colony in Australia, he thought he was being duped. He reportedly examined the body carefully, looking for evidence of stitching around the bill where the beak might have been sewn to a body, and he knew that it would have been quite hard to confirm the platypus's existence in the wild. They're really only found on the east coast of Australia, and they're very much limited to waterways and rivers. Zoologists auditioned many names for the curious animal, such as water mole, duck bill, and duck mole, before settling on platypus, the Latinization of the Greek for flatfoot. But for almost a century, the animal defied classification. Did the body suggest mammal, or did the egg lane suggest reptile? Maybe the duckbill meant it was a kind of hybrid mammal bird. Although the indigenous Australian people were familiar with the animal's behavior, when Western scientists saw that the platypus nursed its young, the classification of mammal was clinched. But even then, the platypus was recognized to be a very special kind of mammal. I'm Jane Fenelon, and I'm a research fellow at the University of Melbourne. Well, the platypuses are really unique for a couple of reasons. One, because they've got a mix of sort of mammalian and reptilian characteristics. So they still have fur, they still suckle their young with milk, and they're the, one of the few egg-laying mammals in the world. They form the monotremes, which are one of the most distantly related and least understood group of living mammals. So they're a really valuable tool to use for comparison and uh, understand more about their unique biology, but also about our common ancestor and how mammals evolved. The monotremes, defined by their egg-laying, were the earliest offshoot of the mammalian family. They diverged from other mammals, including those that would become us, approximately 166 million years ago. But there are still more curious facts about platypuses. Our fascination with them on this show took off after we interviewed Northland College biologist Paula Anich in early 2021 about a serendipitous and startling discovery that her team made at a natural history museum that housed platypus pelts. This is something that would have added to the befuddlement of those early biologists had they only had a handy source of ultraviolet light. In regular light, the platypus looks brown. Its fur is brown. The skin is black. And when we turned on the ultraviolet light, the entire coat of fur glowed in this bright green. It was almost complete from head to toe. The fluorescence was very intense. But Paula, there are other living creatures that also, you know, fluoresce under ultraviolet. Why was the glowing platypus a surprise? There are lots of other animal groups, and I, I perhaps know the vertebrates best, there are lots of other vertebrates that are known to be biofluorescent, but it wasn't thought that mammals were a really large group of fluorescing animals. The animals that we know of that are biofluorescent, many of them have really bright colors under daylight. So many birds and frogs that are already brightly and colorfully patterned also have this fluorescent characteristic, which almost accentuates the patterns they already have. In particular, our stereotype of nocturnal mammals is that they're, they're drab, they're not colorful, they're brown, they're gray, they're trying to stay under the radar, and they're not really using colors to communicate. So to find these hidden colors in these drab nighttime mammals has been really surprising. So why is it glowing I mean, with ultraviolet light? Because at, at night, I mean, you know, they, there's no ultraviolet light. The hypothesis that, that I'm intrigued by right now is that Ultraviolet fluorescence in these mammals is a form of camouflage. We don't know if they can see the colors that they're fluorescing. So we don't know if they're using it to communicate amongst themselves. But 
in some circumstances, ultraviolet light is more abundant at night than daylight. And so predators might be using ultraviolet light to locate their prey. If these mammals can absorb that ultraviolet light and emit a light that's at a different wavelength, it might effectively be cloaking them from predators that are using ultraviolet light to locate prey at night. Communication is another possibility, although we don't know if these animals can see themselves when they're fluorescing. But Paula, you're saying this is a camouflage, but wait a minute, they're glowing. That doesn't sound like a good good camouflage strategy to me. You know, here I am. Well, camouflage depends on what predators are looking for. If predators have ultraviolet sensitive vision, uh, then they're able to respond to things that are emitting ultraviolet radiation. If the platypus absorbs ultraviolet radiation and turns it into a longer radiation, it's not reflecting ultraviolet light. And in fact, these animals reflect very little ultraviolet light. So predators that are queuing off that ultraviolet light um, will not be able to see the platypus. The platypus is essentially cloaking itself. It is producing green wavelengths. So a predator that's keying off of green would be able to see it more easily. So it definitely depends on what the predator is queuing on. You know, Seth, I've heard Paula's description so many times, and it still astounds me that <laughs> these animals glow under ultraviolet light. Yeah, something we don't, except for our teeth. <laughs> so here we have a semi-aquatic, mostly nocturnal, webbed foot, beaked, egg-laying, milk-producing mammal with fluorescent fur. Is there anything else that we can add to that list of curious traits? Well, there is a defense system that platypuses share with reptiles. Venom. The males have a venomous spur on their hind legs. My name is Josh Griffiths. I'm a senior wildlife ecologist with research groups Caesar Australia and EnviroDNA. And so, you know, people often ask me about protection from that. But really, if you handle them correctly, it's, it's a pretty low risk. Uh, but it certainly does make handling them a, just that little bit more interesting. I'm going to ask you about the spur. I've seen photos of it. It looks quite sharp, but that's not the worst of it because of it's quite painful when you get stung, I understand. Have you ever been stung? No, I haven't. Um, it, it, it's quite easy to avoid because they've got very short legs. The spur's on the inside of their hind legs. And so really the only way that they're able to spur you is sort of directly underneath their body. So when you're handling them, you never sort of cradle them underneath like you would maybe a lot of other animals you you hold them by the tail um, and then very quickly they go into a a bag where they're kept nice and quiet and and placed on a mat so as long as there's nothing underneath their body um, it's quite easy to avoid the spur you hold them by their tail i i pictured you cradling them like you would a, a puppy or something but that's not what you do no, certainly not. I, I mean, occasionally, maybe for some nice photos, you'll, you'll get uh, a picture of, uh, of me cradling one, but that will always be a, a female. Um, but yeah, picking them up by the tail, I mean, the tail is incredibly robust. It's not like, you know, grabbing your cat's tail or dog's tail. And quite a few Australian animals are like that. Certainly some of the, the macropods, the small kangaroos, you also hold by the tail. And Essentially, it's robust as one of their limbs. And so I have had some people sort of uh, criticize me on, on, say, social media when they see photos of it. But um, it's actually the safest thing for, for them as well as for us. Can you say a bit more about how the platypus uses venom? I understand that the spur works like a hypodermic needle <laughs> and that it in- injects this venomous cocktail. Where does it create that cocktail, that venomous cocktail? 
Yeah, so only the males have, have spurs and essentially it's used in territorial disputes. So it's not a uh, defense against predators at all. It's, it's to fight other males. And so um, you're right, it's like a hypodermic needle. So the spur is attached uh, via a duct to some venom glands that are in the um, sort of groin in the abdominal region of the, of the platypus. Um, and during breeding season, those glands swell up and their venom production goes up quite significantly. So it's really only during breeding season where they produce a lot of venom and they also get a bit more aggressive as well. And that's to just basically defend their territory so that they have first access to all the females and they can pass on their genes, which is essentially what all animals are, are trying to do. So um, yeah, they might seem cute and furry, but they, they can be pretty nasty. And, and the venom is particularly um, toxic. And, and for humans, it causes excruciating pain and a lot of swelling. And probably the most interesting thing is that things like uh, morphine, all of our opiates, don't have any effect whatsoever on it. Goodness. Um, when you come across a platypus and he's, he or she is in the net, do they make a sound, Josh? Do they cry out? Um, I have no idea what a platypus, <laughs> what sound it might make. Yeah, the only sound they make, so, so they don't vocalize at all in, in, in the wild to communicate to each other. And, and that's one of the things that makes them difficult to study. They don't call, they don't leave any traces behind. They do occasionally make a, a funny little high-pitched growl. We're actually, we're able to record it just recently. It's almost like a little chirping sort of growl. It's, uh, it's very unusual and, and not many people have, have ever heard it. We'll hear the reason why Dr. Griffiths risks a venomous sting to catch platypuses and why he stays up all night to do it. That's later in the show. But first, one last evolutionary adaptation that mammals, like the rest of us, certainly don't have. Platypuses use concept called electroreception in their beaks to find their food, which is pretty unique among mammals. That's definitely an advantage for them, finding their food in the rivers. Electroreception in their beaks? Yes, so they can detect electricity through their beaks. So when they're feeding underwater, they actually close their ears, they close their eyes, um, they close off their nose so they can't smell anything underwater either. Uh, so they have to rely entirely on feeling the electricity of the little animals that they're trying to eat to find them, to eat them. That, that's indeed more than a little unusual. And maybe the most amazing thing about that is that there is actually any electrical <laughs> behavior of what they eat. I mean, that's even smaller than they are. They have the advantage that they are feeding underwater, so that helps with the conductivity of the electricity. But yes, they are picking up pretty small signals, but they also have a lot of these electroreceptors in their beaks. Coming up, the platypus genome has recently been sequenced. What does it say about how these unusual mammals ended up with such remarkable adaptations and we didn't? Also, will the creation of the world's first platypus sanctuary offer them sufficient protection from the threats of climate change? In this episode, we're going a little platypus crazy on Big Picture Science.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We now have an idea why the platypus has fascinated people for so long. Its assortment of curious adaptations is, in part, what prompted scientists to sequence its genome. They were attempting to find out how the platypus evolved. And after all, this furry, web-footed, and beaked creature is a mammalian cousin. Platypuses were one of the first mammal lineages to split off from our evolutionary tree. So platypuses went one way and our ancestors went the other way. And so by by going back and having a look what we have in common with the platypus, we can see what is common to their evolution and what is different. There are only five species of egg-laying mammals, those monotremes. The semi-aquatic platypus is joined by four species of the terrestrial echidna. They're about the same size as a platypus, but they're covered in fur and they're also covered in spikes. And they have a very distinctive waddle when they walk and they have a very long, skinny beak as well. And they mostly feed on ants and termites. Jane Fenelon is part of the team that looked at the implications of the most recent sequencing of the platypus and echidna genomes. The initial draft genome sequencing was led by professor of genomics at the University of Missouri, Wesley Warren, in 2008, and he says we now have a better understanding of how monotremes came to be so well-suited for the river environments of eastern Australia. It has a beak like a duck, it waddles like a duck, it lays eggs like a duck, but the platypus is not a duck. You know, we call it a mammal, but is that correct, or is that what we should be calling it? Yes, that's correct. You know, using phylogenetic methods, we definitely know that it's at the base of the mammalian tree. And so think of it as like this ancient mammal that hasn't um, learned how to be a mammal. It's retained all these reptilian and bird-like features. Well, when were its ancestors last a mammal? How long ago was that? Yeah, in our original paper, we estimated around 166 million years ago, so that divergence point. But the recent paper uh, that came out in Nature re-estimated it was a little bit uh, older than that, about 187 million years ago. So those are our best guesses based on fossil and genetic evidence. So 187 million years ago, that's a long time ago. I mean, that's, I mean, I think that's even before there were very many dinosaurs. If you looked around at other mammals, did they all kind of look like a, a platypus? Well, what we think is you had this trajectory of these very ancient mammals, right? That are on this trajectory of speciation. So you have all these different species events uh, where you have separation of one species from another. And uh, for whatever reason, and we don't know why, the platypus kept a lot of these features, whereas the modern mammals, what we call the placental mammals, which is most mammal species, lost these traits. And that's what's so fascinating about the platypus and the, and the other monotreme. These are called, in this group, they're called monotremes. So the next level up is the marsupials, you know, the kangaroos, and then then you have all the placental mammals, which are a whole bunch of different species. But why did they do that? I mean, was there some environmental niche that they found? They jumped into it. They had the characteristics to survive there, and they, they were happy to be sort of a, 
such an ancient mammal that they, you know, are at least partly reptilian, I guess you could say. Actually, that is one of the, the debates that they've talked about. And, and what you just said is one of the key um, understandings that we have. And in, in terms of this environmental niche, they found this area in Australia, in Eastern Australia, in these freshwater ecosystems. And, you know, the molecular mechanisms they had in place as this ancient mammal remained. And we think that's because that was the best way to adapt to that environment. How do you determine which features the platypus inherited from ancient reptilian ancestors and which evolved independently, uh, you know, in the intervening almost 200 million years? I mean, can you see these differences in the genome? You've sequenced the genome after all. Right, right. And that's that's where we look to really understand uh, that transition that I keep referring to over time. When we sequence the genomes, we can get a collection of protein coding genes. And those are the features of the genome that do all the work. I mean, without those, we would not exist. So we want to look at all those different classifications of those genes. For example, genes that are responsible for egg production. Other examples would be for venom production. Well, all right. Uh, let me follow up on that, at least with regard to egg laying. If, if I could go back uh, 200 million years and, and look at those early mammals, were they all laying eggs or did we get rid of that very early and go to live birth? There's this ongoing debate even today about the evolution of what we call placental structure. Viviparity is what it's called versus oviparity, which is egg laying. And so most of most scientists agree that the placental structure evolved from eggs. So eggs was the first kind of process for producing young and protecting those young. Again, thinking of them as this oddity where they didn't get the instructions to shed some of these traits, uh, so they kept them. And the speculation, again, we just discussed is they kept them because the environment forced them to keep these to adapt and survive. And remember that egg laying is considered an ancestral feature predecessor for placental development. And so now you have the marsupials that have this development in the pouch, a type of placenta. And now you switch over to a majority of all the mammalian species that have placental development, you know, within the body. And so that's, that's that transition. Uh, and some of the genes that are responsible for that, we really don't know. And we're still using molecular tools to find out. So the platypus retained egg laying, and that, that came from the reptiles, right? Were they the ones that invented egg laying? They did not invent, reptiles did not invent egg laying, but if you think of a, a lot of the ancestral species that have this capability and, and a broader number of species of reptiles, there are reptiles that have live bearing capabilities. So there's this mixture of species within reptiles that have egg laying and live birth capabilities. And the platypus retained the egg laying feature. And we don't know if that's an ancient reptilian feature or whether it's just an ancestral feature of many species. The platypus genome apparently shows that milk production and mm -hmm. uh, you know giving birth to live young, they, they, they sound to me like something that go hand in hand because for humans, they kind of do, but they evolved at different points in time. Obviously, for the platypus, they never got to the live birth part. So lactation seems to be very old. How, any idea how far back that goes? I don't know what the dating on lactation is, but what's really interesting about the platypus is, you know, they don't have nipples. So the females don't have nipples like most all mammals. 
And so the young, when they're cracked out of the egg, they actually suckle on this very rich milk that's on the surface of the abdomen. And unlike most of the mammals, the milk composition changes dynamically, whereas in mammals it doesn't, or other mammals, I should say. And so that's what's a real interesting difference, uh, and we don't understand why. When we looked at the genome, some of the genes that we expect to be there for milk were there for platypus as well. So there's not, uh, you know, huge differences in terms of the milk, but the composition changes dramatically, which is a very interesting difference. So, so as the young get older, their diet changes. Exactly. Yeah. If you look at what they're drinking from the mother in terms of the milk, yes, that's true. Well, since we're talking about uh, gene speciation, you know, you've mentioned the development of venom. Male right. platypuses have a venomous spur. Uh, so these yeah. are are these the same venom genes that I might find in a snake or I don't know some reptile somewhere? Yeah, uh, we did an additional study outside of the, the Nature paper that we published with the Australians, and we we looked at this question of what genes are in the venom and how can we look at how similar they are to snakes and spiders. Um, what was fascinating is we came up with a number of about eighty four of these talk what we call toxins. And you look at the gene families that they arose from, then you're correct. It was a convergent approach where they borrowed the same game plan that snakes and spiders had and some of the similar ancient genes, made copies of them and modified them for, for whatever purpose, uh, you know, the venomous purpose for the platypus. And that's what's so fascinating about that convergent evolution uh, that you just mentioned. And the platypus, again, has borrowed some of those same kind of concepts and, and modified those genes. And so we found one of the genes that, that is shared with spiders, a neurotoxin that's in this cocktail of proteins in the, in the uh, platypus venom. So you mentioned their convergent evolution. Maybe you could tell us what that is. Sure. Convergent evolution is when a variety of different species use the same genes to accomplish the same trait. And so if you have these proteins that are involved, you know, let's call them toxins, and there are super families of these toxins, and we know they exist in snakes and spiders and other species that have uh, venom capabilities. Those genes, uh, from an ancestral standpoint, were a template of genes, and then these species adapted those genes in different ways for a variety of purposes, whether it's a particular prey that's trying to immobilize. But if you compare the platypus to like the snake, they have used those genes in similar ways. And so the modifications are different, the genes are different, but the genes are used in similar ways. So you might expect, for example, a neurotoxin that's used in a snake could be used for the same purpose in a platypus. Sounds like we all have a bunch of Lincoln logs, uh, genes, and, and we build what we want, but sometimes we build the same sorts of things. Yeah, and except it takes millions of years to do that. <laughs> well, finally, Wes, we characterize the platypuses as weird, as an oddball, a mix of traits of other mm -hmm. organisms. But, uh, you know, wouldn't that be true of any other species that diverge from, you know, some line or other that led to us? We might just consider that odd. Maybe, maybe from the platypus point of view, we're the odd ones because we don't lay eggs. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If we're from the platypus perspective, they might think that you didn't keep a lot of these interesting features. And so your diversity in terms of responding to your environment is less so than us, if you're speaking from a platypus perspective. Wes Warren, thanks so very much for speaking with us. You're welcome. Wesley Warren is a professor of genomics at the University of Missouri, and he led the first draft sequencing 
of the platypus genome. But despite all the adaptive talents it has going for it, the platypus can't keep up with the threats of climate change. Platypus habitat is in danger. Wanting to protect this Australian icon, the government of New South Wales is directing the Taronga Conservation Society to build the world's first platypus sanctuary. I am Dr. Phoebe Ma, a wildlife conservation officer at Taronga Zoo. In the last summer black fires here in Sydney, Australia, the platypus were known as the silent victims of the bushfires and the droughts. With their pools drying up and the fire encroaching, they had nowhere to go. We were getting multiple calls and requests. Can we take the platypus at our zoo? And we couldn't take them. You know, a zoo is kept at capacity. We don't just have lots of space to take these animals in for rescue. What it made us realize is these droughts and bushfires are only gonna get worse and we need to build capacity to rescue these platypus. Phoebe, where would the platypus sanctuary be and how many platypuses would it house? Yeah, so we're actually gonna build uh, two sanctuaries. So we have two sites at Taronga. We have one smaller site in Sydney and we have a large property out in Dubbo, which is in Western New South Wales. We're building a hugely significant sanctuary which can hold up to 80 platypus. Um, This is what we're calling a catchment scale refuge, um, which means that if the entire catchment dries up during drought, which it has historically, that we can take enough platypuses to be able to preserve enough genetic diversity so that when we do release them back to the wild, they equally as fit um, to become a sustainable population again. Would this be a habitat that you created or are you capturing a piece of natural habitat? Yeah, so we're actually doing both. So we start off, it's like a triage system. So when they first come in, they will be in um, these man-made environments, I suppose, that are supposed to replicate the environment. So they'll have an aquatic area connected through tunnel systems to earth banks. Um, This allows vets and keepers to be able to monitor them closely. And then from here, they'll actually go into what we're uh, calling the pre-release creeks. And the pre-release creeks are natural creek systems that occur within the zoo's property, but we're modifying them um, so that they're five-star facilities for these platypuses. So they will be able to forage in a natural way. They'll be able to burrow in a natural way. So if, if they are to forage in a natural way, then I assume that the sanctuary will be filled with uh, things that platypus like to eat their food sources yeah correct yep so um they love little crustaceans like yabbies so freshwater yabbies make up a lot of their diet but they also feed on lots of invertebrate larvae Um, and so in that pre-release creeks that will just have live food living in there so they will learn to be able to, to forage like they would in the wild for these live food items Seems like it might be easier just to get climate change under control. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, so but this is this is the sad point where we've got to, isn't it? Is, you know, when you think that we're having to get to a point that we have to build these, um, you know, semi-artificial sanctuaries just to save our animals, it, it's really the pointy end of the problem. Um, and yet approaching it from a much broader perspective and trying to tackle climate change itself does seem to be the much better approach, the more holistic approach, because we can't do this for every single species. Well, Phoebe, really the best of luck to you. Uh, We have come on this show to really 
fall in love with the platypus <laughs> as we learn more easy about it. Do. It's easy to do. And so best of luck in your efforts in uh, saving this unique animal. Oh, well, thank you so much. And we look forward to being able to help this species. Phoebe Marr is a wildlife conservation officer at the Taronga Zoo in New South Wales, Australia. Seth, she also said that they had completed fundraising and design and that construction on the Platypus Conservation Center will begin very soon and they should be able to start rescuing platypuses in 2022. And the public can come look? Yes, absolutely. And she says that they encourage public visits and they will have an education center so that people can learn everything they want to learn (laughs) if they haven't learned it from the show about platypuses. Coming up, Phoebe Marr said that the sanctuary can hold up to 80 platypuses, which seems like kind of a modest number given the large number of vulnerable creatures out there. But actually, we don't know how many platypuses are out there. Next, how to take a platypus census from staying up all night catching and releasing to a new method that doesn't risk a venomous sting. We can go and take a water sample and then use a platypus-specific probe, a little genetic sequence that only identifies platypus DNA in that water sample. This episode is all platypus with a little echidna, but mainly platypus crazy on Big Picture Science. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches... April 9th. Aside from the changing climate, one of the things that makes protecting the vulnerable platypus tricky is that we don't have a basic head count for the animals. Being elusive creatures slipping quietly into rivers, they aren't cooperating by lining up for a census. And that's the reason that wildlife ecologist Josh Griffiths catches platypuses and risks that venomous sting that we heard about. Each trapped and released platypus receives an identification chip. The chip is really just an ID tag, so it's not for tracking their movements in the wild at all. It's just, it's a microchip like your cat or dog would have, um, so that if we ever capture the animal again, we can scan it and see the chip number and you know, then be able to see where it was captured before, how old it might be, et cetera, et cetera. So how, ma- how many platypuses, by the way, can you say platypus as, as plural? Is it platypuses or platypus? I think there's a debate uh, about that. So 
Actually, most people like platter pie, but that, that's incorrect. So it's actually platypuses. The actual strictly correct name is, is platypodes. Platypodes. Okay. So what is the number of platypodes, the number of platypuses in Australia? Do you have just a ballpark so we have a sense of how big the population is? The short answer is, is that we simply don't know. I think there were some recent very loose estimates of between 30,000 and 100,000. But yeah, all of, the, um, all of the models that are used to estimate population sizes don't really work for platypuses for, for a number of reasons. But, um, and that's one of the things that makes it so difficult to understand what's going on with populations because we can't estimate numbers effectively. What sort of threats are they facing? I mean, certainly climate change is affecting every living creature on this planet. Are there particular threats also to the rivers and to the fact that they live in fresh water? Absolutely. Um, and, and as with most things, there, there's quite a few threats and they work in different combinations in, in different areas. Um, climate change is absolutely going to be a big one for this species. And particularly in my part of Australia, in the southeastern corner, all the climate change predictions are saying less rainfall, hotter temperatures. Of course, that means less flow in our rivers. And so if there's not water available, then platypus aren't going to survive. And the other thing is that, you know, water is an incredibly precious resource for us. And so we take water out of their systems for domestic agricultural use, industrial use. We dam their rivers, which drastically changes water flow. We clear vegetation around waterways, which has a massive impact with what goes on in those waterways. So they're probably the big ones that happen at a, at a very large scale. Well, in, indeed, that is why you go out at night in order to catch platypuses and why you've racked up maybe a thousand platypuses that you've held. Um, what is required of you to catch them? Yeah, um, what's required by me is, is certainly uh, a level of craziness, I think, but probably most ecologists would, would say that. Yeah, so as I mentioned before, they are incredibly difficult to study in the wild. So we use specialised nets that get set in their waterways during the afternoon. So we'll spend most of the afternoon getting nets set at about four or five different locations. And then we have to check those nets all through the night so that we can process any platypuses that we catch. And then we do some general health checks. So look at their weight and body condition, um, look them over for any injuries, et cetera, et cetera. And then um, the whole process takes about 10 to 15 minutes. Um, and then we very quickly get them back into the water to go about their business for the rest of the night. So they can swim away and say, you'll never believe what just happened to me. Okay, so what this means is you're up all night long checking these nets and you're coming across platypuses and they're probably not in a good mood and you're not in a good mood and it's like three in the morning. And how, how does that go down, Josh? <laughs> um, some nights better than others, certainly. Um, yeah, look, it, it is a long night. We're usually able to sneak a, a couple of hours sleep each night, but they are. it, it is a very labor-intensive uh, process. And I guess... What makes it so difficult is that you, you don't catch large numbers of animals. So you're typically catching probably a couple of animals each night. Certainly, I've done lots of nights where I haven't caught anything. With, they're, they're tough to handle. And so being able to get enough numbers to actually show you anything is quite a challenge. It means you've got to do repeat surveys, all night um, surveys. And, and this comes back to, you know, one of the reasons that we don't know much about platypus is that these, these events, they're incredibly difficult to do. And, 
you know, there's limited funding to go around for conservation. What kind of numbers do you need before you can start to get an idea of how the populations might be changing? Um, well, it really depends on what you're trying to find out and, and what sort of degree of change there is. So, you know, for example, if, we look, if we're trying to look at population genetics, we typically need around 20 animals from each population to give you a decent sample size. If you want to look at, um, you know, demographics or reproduction, you know, you might need to have more animals than that. And also typically with platypus populations, we're seeing sort of gradual change over time. So it's really that long-term data that we're requiring. And so, you know, for most populations, we need sort of five to 10 years of data to be able to show a change over time. And of course, sometimes that might be too late to actually do anything about that population. So yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a very difficult uh, challenge that we're facing, but we are slowly getting there and we, we've certainly got some good long-term data in at least a couple of couple of locations which um, unfortunately aren't telling a, a great story. And, and Josh what are you learning about those platypus populations? What's happening to them? One of the key things that we want to understand is our populations reproducing and we have populations um, that we're monitoring at the moment that on the surface look reasonably healthy because we're catching reasonable numbers, but we're just not getting any juveniles in that population. And so that's a really big warning sign where we've got our long-term trapping data. We're certainly showing that a lot of populations are under serious stress and we have seen a, a drop off in numbers, um, particularly in the last sort of 20 years where we've had very significant drought in this part of the country. Yeah. As fun as it sounds to pull all-nighters catching monotremes, Josh Griffiths has another technique for counting platypuses, or platypodes, one that isn't as time-intensive, doesn't require staying up all night, and putting researchers at risk of a venomous sting. It's called environmental DNA, and its use is growing for all sorts of aquatic monitoring. It's designed around the simple fact that every living thing leaves behind traces of its DNA. I mean, this methodology has really revolutionized the way that we can monitor platypus populations. So we've come up with this technique and it's used for a number of other species as well, where we can go and take a water sample, extract the DNA from that water, and then use a platypus specific probe, a little genetic sequence that only identifies platypus DNA in that water sample. It's really only telling you presence absence, but if you do it at hundreds of sites, you can look at the number of sites where platypus occupy those sites as a percentage, and it gives you a very good indication as to whether populations are healthy or not at a larger scale than what our trapping can do. Now, what other DNA might be in that water? We know that we're hoping that there's platypus DNA, but just to give us a sense of what sort of living organisms are in Australian fresh water, what else might be in there? Yeah, look, all kinds of things. Um, and it's it's actually amazing. The more that we're understanding, our, our rivers are actually like a, a soup of DNA, which maybe isn't a great picture when you're when you're swimming in these rivers. But um, so obviously we pick up platypus, we pick up a lot of other aquatic species, so native and introduced fish. We get uh, a lot of frogs at certain times of the year, particularly around breeding time. We also pick up quite a few terrestrial species. So we can pick up birds that are roosting in trees around the waterways. You know, even things like deer and foxes, because they live in the landscape around these waterways, their DNA also washes into these systems. So 
there's different techniques that you can use to actually quantify the whole biodiversity of an area. The platypus genome was recently sequenced. And did you need that genome sequenced in order to identify the animal using this DNA technique? Not the entire sequence. Um, so we only look at a very small fragment of DNA. So once once DNA is shed into the environment, it degrades very quickly, it breaks up. So you're not getting entire genomes from that system. So we're only looking at a very small fragment of the mitochondrial genome instead of the nuclear genome. But it's a, it's a fragment that has a code that is specific to platypus. And we can do the same for a lot of other species as well. But um, to give you an idea, it's, it's a very sensitive technique. And so we've done some, some modeling with some of the universities here where we can go and take just two water samples run a couple of tests in the lab, and we have a, over a 95% chance of detecting platypus if they're there. It's an incredibly sensitive technique. And as I said, it's, it's enabled us to be able to collect data over landscape scales, uh, which is what you require for a, a species that's distributed as widely as platypus. Now, the echidna is related to the platypus, right? They're both monotremes. If an echidna came and took a sip out of that, that river or swam across it, would its DNA be confused with the platypus DNA since you're just using a, a, a snippet? No, it, it's not. It, it's, um, and, and we have looked at that. But obviously, the close, more closely related species are, the more similar their DNA is. And we certainly have some trouble with some of our native fish species that are very closely related. So we might not be able to identify between two different species. But platypus are such a unique creature. And yes, echidna is their closest relative, but they're still quite distantly related in comparison. So we do actually pick up echidnas occasionally in our samples, but um, yeah, it's easily distinguished from platypus. But they're not swimming around in the water with the platypuses, are they? Not often, although I have seen some footage of echidnas swimming and they use that nose as like a, a bit of a snorkel. <laughs> One of the big picture questions is when you have these data and, and maybe it's too soon or maybe it's not, how do you help protect the platypus using these data and what options are there? Because so many species, almost every species is under stress and threatened for a number of reasons. How do we save the platypus? Yeah, look, and, and it is a tough one, but I, I guess the good thing is that platypus, you know, they're, they're, they're certainly not on the verge of extinction. So that's a great start. You know, the idea is first, first of all, we need to identify that there is a problem. And so that's what we're doing with this data. We're showing that populations are under stress. We know that they've disappeared from certain areas. Ideally, what you, what you want to do with that data is identify the factors that are behind those declines. But Certainly our trapping data, you know, one of the biggest problems for platypus has simply been a reduction in flows and a reduction in, in habitat. And, and we know water is important for ourselves. So we need to get smarter about how we use water. We need to conserve it where possible. Um, we need to get smarter about how we can use environmental flows to improve systems. And we've certainly shown on, on a few small scales that if we can provide those flows, then platypus populations will respond. The challenge is we've got a finite resource and it needs to be stretched further and further each year because there's more people around and there's going to be less rainfall. So that's, that's going to be a massive challenge going forward. But I would say that there are going to be populations that we are going to lose in the future because we simply can't provide adequate water for them. And that's a really sad situation to be in. So 
Finally, Josh, if it is not already evident, what do we lose if the platypus disappears? From my perspective, we lose one of the most unique creatures on the planet. And I think that in itself is worthy of protection. But I guess on a, on, on a broader scale, in a lot of Australian waterways, they are the apex predator. And we know from terrestrial systems and marine systems that if you take out apex predators, it throws the whole system into chaos. And so we don't really understand what that impact is going to be. And then from, I guess, a much more selfish perspective from, you know, the, the human centric perspective, there's a lot of potential there in terms of uh, new antibiotics that are being looked at from platypus milk. There was something around treatment for diabetes recently and even new painkillers from their venom. So I think there's, there's so much that we would lose from an environmental perspective, but also potentially from a, from a very selfish human perspective as well. Do you feel frustrated ever as a wildlife ecologist having to justify trying to save an animal, protect an animal through an argument for its utility for humans? Absolutely. Um, but if that's what gets some traction and some movement, then so be it. And also just frustration from, you know, in, in a lot of instances, we sort of know what we need to do. But there's just a lack of will and I guess a lack of funding often to make that happen. And so I think all ecologists probably go through these cycles that are, you know, some days it's, it's quite depressing, but then other days you have some wins and it's incredibly satisfying. So, you know, as you mentioned before, a lot of our species are under pressure from a variety of different angles and we need to do as much as we can to minimize our impact. And I, and I guess that's what sort of drives me. And different arguments will appeal to different people. And for some, just the, the moral argument that animals, other animals, non-human animals also have a right to exist <laughs> is the only argument that you need. Definitely. Um, and, and I guess, you know, I'm lucky that I work with a species that is quite charismatic. It has the, the cute and furry factor. So, and I guess the things that are good for platypus are good for everything that lives in that waterway. So we often use it as a flagship species to improve the health for a lot of bugs and crustaceans that don't get any attention. And, and that's an incredibly valuable way um, to, I guess, improve general river health using a sort of focal species um, that can assist that. Well, Josh Griffiths, thank you so much for talking to us about platypodes and the best of luck to you. In, in your research in trying to save this unique animal. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure chatting to you. Josh Griffiths is a senior wildlife ecologist with Caesar Australia and Enviro DNA. Well, we've come to that moment where we look at the big picture, Seth, and when it comes to platypuses, what do you see that as being? <laughs> Small animals, but a big picture. Well, I <laughs> mean, right. we know that nature is economical, which is to say it's cheap. It doesn't buy new things, new features if it doesn't need to. And here's a critter that goes back 150 to 200 million years, and it's basically the same critter it was, it seems, laying eggs and lactating and doing all sorts of strange things. That's really astounding that there's been an environment for these guys for 150, 200 million years. It's interesting you say that because, of course, that environment is going away. They've evolved for this particular niche, and now that niche is disappearing. And, you know, this animal is a charismatic animal. We can talk about it for an hour. And in some ways, it's, it's a stand-in for all of the creatures that maybe aren't as photogenic, Yeah, that aren't as cute. Aren't as cute. 
don't have that camera appeal. Yeah, exactly. Uh, they, they, they've made it more than 100, maybe 200 million years, and now, today, they're finally under threat, and that seems to be our fault. Well, we are also crazy about the team without whom we could not do this show. Senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producer Sarah Derwin. I am executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation and NASA. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that, among other things, investigates the workings and effects of evolution. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. A big thanks to our listeners and to those who have joined Big Picture Science on Patreon. Original music was composed by Dewey DeLay and June Miyaki. If you'd like to know more about the guests you've heard, well, you'll find links to them on our website, bigpicturescience.org, along with past episodes of Big Picture Science. And if you haven't already, we hope that you will subscribe to the podcast. In this case, it would be the Platypodes podcast. And follow us on social media. This episode of Big Picture Science is called Platypus Crazy. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate background, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.